First Chronicles chapter 11. We have Bibles available if you'd like a Bible just so you can follow along. If you don't have one, please take one with you. Um, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. I don't know how many of you ate breakfast yesterday, but I suspect most of you, and I suspect you ate breakfast again today. I suspect you had dinner yesterday, and I'm sure you're planning on having dinner again today. You know, every day, not just on a Sunday, do we want to dive into the Word of God, but we want to uh, feed on it at all times um, so that the Lord can grow us. Well, today we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. So turn with me there in your Bibles if you would. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. You ready for a big one here? Write this down in your notes. 1 Chronicles chapter 11 follows 1 Chronicles chapter 10. How's that? For, uh, thank you. I know. For being profound. Now, I say that, though, because in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, we have the story of the death of Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He had ruled as the king of Israel for decades. Uh, and he came to an end, obviously, uh, as everyone will. But he came to an end on a hill uh, in Israel, where the, the Philistines had come against them. They shot the arrows, and Saul was struck by those arrows, and he eventually would die. Now, we read it in chapter 10. We might come to chapter 11 and think, oh, next day, David is the king. When John F. Kennedy was ki killed in November of 1963, you know, before they even left Dallas, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson is president of the United States. That's how it works, right? One guy dies, the next guy fills the office. Well, it doesn't actually work that way uh, in Bible times here. And so there was sort of this lull uh, that took place here. Actually, we learn from another place in the scripture that David didn't become the king of all of Israel for seven and a half years. That information is not provided for us between chapter 10 and chapter 11. We might look at it and we might think he went right into his kingdom. But as we look at the parallel passages that are found for us in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5 and in other places, we see that there was quite an interval in between. And David is sort of in a waiting game. The title of our message today is Worth the Wait. And the reason why I titled it Worth the Wait is because we see that David learned some valuable lessons during the waiting. You see, God had anointed David when he was a boy. Samuel had come on the scene, had come into uh, the town. He had gathered up Jesse's family. He had brought all the sons out. And little David wasn't even invited. He was out in the field with the shepherds. But the other six boys... Uh, were invited. And, and Samuel looked at each one of them, and, and none of them were the one that God said, this is going to be the next king. And so Samuel, perplexed, says to Jesse, is, don't you have any other sons? He said, well, I got a, a young kid, you know, but he's out in the field with the sheep. Obviously, it's not going to be him. He said, well, bring him in. And David is brought in, I don't know, halos or something glowing upon David. Samuel knew. And he said, that's the one. And David was anointed. Now, they estimate that David may have been 10, 12. Let's just say he was 15 years. He was young. He probably was no more than 15. So let's say he was about 10 years of age when he was anointed. David doesn't become the king of Israel until he's 30 years. David had to wait 20 years. Waiting is hard. It's so easy to get ahead of God. The temptation, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. I'm moving forward and God, it doesn't matter to me what happens. I'll figure it out when I get there. Waiting is hard. But David learned some valuable lessons about waiting. And believe me, on the backside, when David could look back and he could see all that time he spent there, David would say, as the message is entitled, you know what, it was worth the wait. Because God taught me some very valuable things about himself. Well, our passage, let's read it. It's First uh, Chronicles 11, 1-3. It says, Now then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron, 
And they said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord. Now, the passage begins by saying, then all Israel gathered together. And as I said, that's seven and a half years after Saul had died. Previously, shortly after Saul had died, David was down in a town called Hebron. And Hebron is a stronghold city. The scripture calls it a city of refuge, a place that a person could run to escape uh, the eye-for-an-eye avenger, the next of kin who might come after you if you had done a crime against somebody's brother or their cousin, the near kin. You could run there for a safe trial. And David had run to the city of Hebron. And the leaders of the tribe of Judah had come to David at the city of Hebron, and they said, we want you to be our king. Now, Israel, you may recall, is made up of the 12 tribes of Israel. Eleven of those tribes said, we're not interested in you being our king. One of the tribes, Judah, said, we'd like you to be our king. And so 2 Samuel 2.11 says, And the time that David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. So David was a king, but he was not a king of all of the territory. The king of Israel proper, if you will, the other 11 tribes, was a man by the name of Ishbosheth. 2 Samuel 2.10 says, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years, but the house of Judah followed David. Now, you may recall that when Saul was killed on Bethshean, that hill of uh, sort of central Israel there, three of his sons died with him, but he had a fourth son who was apparently not with them uh, at that particular battle. That's Ishbosheth, and that is the man who is named the king of Israel. And he would rule Israel, the 11 tribes, for two years, and then he would die. David would rule Judah, and the nation is now divided. After Ishbosheth's death, nobody ruled Israel for five years, five and a half years. But David is the king, so to speak, or not so to speak, but he is the king of Judah. Now, as we read in verse 1, they come, they gather to David, and it says that they anointed David to be the king over Israel. In 2 Samuel, we learn that David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And you might look at that and you're like, wow. You know, you look at U.S. history, and many of our presidents, they were pretty old when they came to, to rule. Or they were old in the sense of the days, you know, so a guy like George Washington is in his late 50s, and you think, that's not old. Well, it was in those days when you died at 62, you know, you're at death's door, and they give you the right to rule. And then a guy comes on like a Teddy Roosevelt, who's 42. And they make him the king. You're like, 42? What could you possibly know to be the president of our country at that young age? A guy like John F. Kennedy, a guy like even like Barack Obama or uh, Bill Clinton or even uh, George Bush was relatively young when these guys uh, came into power. You might look at that and you're like, wow, these guys were young. Are you sure they're going to be able to lead us and direct us? Well, David was only 30. In the United States, you're not even allowed to be president when you're 30. You've got to be 35. And David was 30, so Josh, five more years. And you could be run for president. All righty? But uh, David was 30 years old. And you might think, man, this guy's life. He's got it made. Everything is put in place. But as I told you earlier, David waited probably close to 20 years before he became the king. 
and they were tough 20 years. They weren't serving as kind of the VP, cushy job, nice office, no work to do sort of thing. You know, they were challenging years of his life. During those years, Saul sought to kill him. And most of those years, David ran. David lived in caves. David went to bed at night, not knowing if in the middle of the night he would be startled uh, from his sleep and have to run again. David went to bed at night with his sword lying beside him, just in case the enemy came in and sought to attack him. And the enemy was the king, Saul, who he sought to serve so well. And now the man is trying to kill him. They were a very difficult period of time. And I think, personally, just from my own perspective, I think it's even harder when you have this belief that God said I was going to be the king. Why am I in a cave? God said I would be the king. Why, am, why is my picture in the post office as public enemy number one? You know, the most wanted. It doesn't make any sense, God. And if you're like me, it's in those quiet times when you're sitting there and you begin to, you know, TV's off and everything is shut down and you begin to just think and you begin to pray and you begin to talk to the Lord and you, you begin to get honest with the Lord. And you say, Lord, I don't really like this. And, and I'm not even sure I really like you. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like this period of struggle. I don't like waiting all this time. God, just do what you're going to do or give me plan B so I can move ahead with life. But I don't like the waiting. Well, maybe David said that in his heart or not. I don't know. Maybe he had those moments that things weren't going so well, so to speak. But David refused to get ahead of the Lord. There were even instances when Saul was delivered like a dead duck, so to speak. There's one story, it's almost humorous. David is in a cave. Now, some of the caves in Israel, they will go back, you know, I don't know about miles, but they'll go back far, far, deep, deep, deep into the cave. And David and his men, they're scattered there, and they could see from a distance that Saul and his armies were gathering. And so David and his men get into the caves, and they run into the caves, and they go back into the deep and the dark areas of the caves, and they hide in there. And as long as they're quiet, they're going to be fine. Well, don't you know that Saul comes stumbling into one of those caves? And they're like, oh, man, we're dead. But nobody says anything. And then Saul squats down, and he undresses, and he's going to go to the bathroom in that cave. And now, you know, have you ever been caught, you know, with your pants down, so to speak? You're sitting there like you're a dead duck. What are you going to do? You know, you're running around with your trousers down by your ankles or something. Uh, and some of David's men whisper, this hasn't happened to anybody here? You guys are looking at me like, I've never heard of such things. You know, these happen. And so uh, Saul, or some of David's men start whispering to, Saul, to David. And they say, the Lord has delivered the king into your hands. And it sure looks that way, doesn't it? And David easily could have got ahead of the Lord. But David knew a, a principle, a belief, a bedrock foundation, and I'm not straying from this, that I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I will not kill the king. And he had a couple of different instances when he could have. But he just kept running and kept waiting and kept waiting until the Lord delivered, so to speak, the kingdom into David's hands. And so rather than while Saul was there going to the bathroom, rather than going over and stabbing him and killing him, David essentially lets Saul leave. And Saul gets far away and David cries out and he said, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Don't you know I have nothing against you? I'm not seeking to kill you. And Saul sort of has a change of heart and he's like, yeah, I'm a mess. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And then like a year later, he comes back and does the exact same thing over and over again. And David is in this period of running, but he refused to get ahead of the Lord. And I would encourage you, if you are in a place of waiting, you feel that the Lord has revealed something to you, a job, 
Uh, you feel that he's revealed something to you, some big decision, like an adoption or something like that. You feel that the Lord has called you to full-time ministry or some kind of a ministry, but the doors just don't seem to be opening and you're waiting. Some people, you know, they feel the Lord has led them to a mate. I, I believe the Lord has a mate for me, but he just hasn't shown me who that person is, Mr. Right, Mr. Wrong. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you feel like getting ahead of the Lord. I'll just go out and find anybody. I'll just go out and get any job. I'll just go out and do any old thing. And you want to get ahead of the Lord, I caution you, wait. Wait until the Lord reveals in His perfect timing. I knew things that were going on in my heart the last three or four months that I couldn't necessarily, necessarily share with you guys. I felt the strong leading of the Lord uh, to pastor a fellowship of believers, but I didn't know where that was going and what that was going to look like. And so I, I just kept it to myself, but I waited and I trusted and the Lord shows himself strong. And I am so glad that I can look back and I can say, Lord, I sought to honor you through that whole process. And the Lord was honored. Well, David waits. David wrote this in one of his Psalms. This is Psalm 40. It says, anybody here a U2 fan? Any U2 fans that are willing to admit it? One lady? There's a, okay, a couple of people. Thank you very much. Good. I'll pray for you, all of you. Uh, or so I'm just teasing. Um, but I used to listen to U2. They've been around a long time, folks. You young people think they're a new hip band or something. They've been around a long time. And U2 used to sing a song that was called 40. It was on one of their live albums, I recall. And Bono would get up and he says, there's been a lot of talk about this song. This is not a rebel song or whatever. But he, he said, this is 40 with his little English accent there. And he begins to sing the song. I said, that sounds really familiar. It's familiar because it's from the Bible. He stole the song from the Bible. This is what it says. Psalm 40, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps sure. Many will see, many will see. And... Okay, never mind. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That was a lesson I would suggest to you that David didn't learn from a textbook. David learned that lesson from years and years and years of waiting. David learned valuable things about the Lord. He learned that God could be trusted even when the circumstances didn't seem to indicate that. He learned that God was faithful even when it se didn't seem that that was the case. He learned that God honors those that wait on him. He learned those things while he waited. And now David is in the place where he is going to be named the king of of all of Israel. Not just one tribe, but of all of Israel. So David learned valuable lessons when he waited. But David, also we, we see David's character. His character was developed. In the New Testament, you have sort of that, that stepping stone of growth that God does in our lives. And it starts uh, you know, with the trial that comes our way, and then through the trial we learn perseverance, and through the perseverance we learn uh, character, and so on. And it's just build up as it goes through that God uses difficulties to forge a character within each of us. And David had a character before and also a character that developed during this period of waiting. If you look at our section here, it says, Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron, and they said, Look, we're bony your bones. We're brothers. In times past, you know, Saul was our king, but you were the one that led us. You were the, the military commander that had all the success and so on. Uh, the Lord even told you, you shall be our shepherd and you shall be a ruler over the people. So all the elders came to David and they said, make a covenant with us. And then you, 
you assume, because it says David did. David said, okay, sounds good. So you might read that, and you might look at that, and you say, okay, that's straightforward. But you need to see some things about what's going on in David here. You see, David had waited, as I said, 20 years. David had run. David had to hide. And who did he have to hide from? He had to hide from these people. These were Saul's men that were sent forth to get David. They were the people that had been loyal to Saul. They were the ones that when Saul died, they agreed to follow Ishbosheth, Saul's son, instead of following David. So they made David wait. They were the ones that had David wait another five and a half years, even after the death of Ishbosheth. And David had to live in exile during that period of time. And now these people come to David and they simply say, you know, hey, why don't we just forget about all that bad blood? Why don't we let bygones be bygones? We want you to be our king. Well, let me ask you, how would you respond to that? I would think, maybe I'm spiritual enough on that particular day not to say it, but I would think you want me to just forget everything that you have done and all the difficulty and all the trouble that you caused me for the last 20 years of my life, you just want me to let that go because now you're ready to come back to me and now you're telling me you're sorry? You've caused all this pain and now you want me to forget it now that you're ready to forget it? I don't think so. And you know what? Boom, you guys, jail, dead, whatever it may be. Now that I'm on top, I'm going to get even with all those people that kind of hurt me beforehand. But that's not David's response. If you look at his response, it's one that is very gracious. And it's one that is very accommodating. These tribesmen, for the longest of times, had resisted David's right to rule over them. They'd been in open revolt against David, and quite honestly, they deserved David's judgment. And now they come humbly, and they plead for mercy. And David gives them mercy. There's a powerful picture here. You know, David's great-great-great-great-great-grandson is Jesus in the flesh, when he came in the flesh. And in many ways, when you look at David in the Old Testament, now he's a man with failures. We, we know that David murdered a man. We know that David committed adultery um, and unfaithfulness in that regard. We know that David wasn't perfect. David had sinned. But when, when you look at David, the Scripture says he's a man after the Lord's own heart, that he came to the Lord, he sought his repentance. Sometimes uh, it took him a while to get there, but he sought the Lord in repentance and he was forgiven. And as you look at David, many ways, in many ways, David is a picture of Jesus. And the ways in which David treats his people is in many ways the way that Christ treats us as his people as well. And so there's a, there's a neat picture here in the way in which Christ responds to you and I when we come. You see, you and I, we were a people, it doesn't matter when you came to Christ. I came to Christ when I was about 17 years of age. I was in high school, Notre Dame High School over there. I uh, started going to youth group, began to hear some things about Jesus. I had gone to church all my life, Catholic school and all that. I, I had religion classes, so I, I knew all these things. But I began to hear, if you will, much like you see in the New Testament in the book of Acts, they began to explain more clearly uh, to the disciples. I began to hear the teachings of the Scripture a little more clearly. And I came to an understanding. And I decided when I was about 17 that I wanted to follow the Lord Jesus. Didn't quite know where that was going to take me, what that would mean, but I wanted to follow him. I was all in with him, so to speak. And so I began to follow the Lord when I was 17. That's the average in the United States. Most people that come to the Lord do so before they turn 20. We had a lady here in last service. She was uh, 48 when she gave her life to Christ. Some of you, a little bit later in time, you were, you were hanging on, so to speak. But I have no doubt 
that from when she was 48, there was a period of time where God was doing a work in her heart. For me, it was a period of about two or three years that God was working on my heart, revealing things to me, but I wasn't ready to give up. I wasn't ready to give myself over to him. There was a rightful king, so to speak, in my life, but I wanted to follow the wrong king, Greg, self. There was another that there was to be anointed king, and that is the king of kings, the Lord Jesus. I knew that the ways of the king of kings prospered and the ways of my king failed, but I was not willing to give up. And if you will, like David was sort of in this exile, the Lord was there saying, come, come, I want you to come, I want you to come. And I refused. Uh, despite that knowledge, I resisted. How wonderful to know, however, that David graciously received the people of Israel. And how amazing to know that the Lord Jesus will receive any that come to him as well. You know, in the New Testament, we read the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, the story is of a, a young man who decided, hey, Dad, you're going to die someday, right? What's your plan? He said, yes, I'm going to die someday. He said, um, you'll probably give me an inheritance, right, Dad? He said, yes, I will give you an inheritance. He said, any way I could have the inheritance now. You know, I'm sort of over here secretly rooting for you to die so I can get all the money from the bank account. Is there any way you can give that to me now? And his dad gives him his portion of the inheritance, and the kid immediately takes off. He doesn't really love his dad. He loves his dad's money. And he takes off, and he goes, and it says he spends all of his money in riotous living, partying and all these sorts of things. And when he ran out of money, all of his friends were gone. Nobody wanted to be his buddy anymore when he wasn't picking up the check at the bar and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and this man had to get a job, and he f got himself a job in sort of a pigsty, feeding the pigs. And as he was so poor, he began to look at the food that the pigs were eating. Has anybody here ever fed a pig? I have. I used to work on a farm with pigs. Their food is disgusting. It looks like someone threw it up. A and these pigs are like, ooh, yummy. You know, this is a treat for us or whatever. And it, the Scripture says that this man looked at the food that these pigs were eating and looked at it somewhat longingly. So, oh, man, if I only had a bowl of that. And then it says, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. The light went on. I think theologically we might call that regeneration. He came to his senses. He says, you know what? There are servants that work for my dad that eat better than I do. I'm going to return to my dad. I'm going to ask him to take me in. Don't take me in as a son. I don't deserve it. I'm a louse. But take me in as a servant. At least I'll have three meals each day. And so the man who comes to his senses returns to his dad. And how does his dad respond? You no good son. You come back to me now that you have need. What do you want, more of my money? Forget it. No, that's not it at all. That's not the heart of the scripture. If that's your first inclination, that, yeah, that's probably how the guy responded, you don't understand the Lord that we follow. If that's the, the way you think that God would respond to you if you came to him, you don't know the love of the Lord Jesus. You can know it. Here's what you need to know. You need to know that when you come to the Lord and you've been running for him, from him for five years, 10 years, 48 years, like this lady here earlier, when you come to the Lord, the Lord will come with open arms and he'll say, I've been waiting for you to come. I'm so glad that you are here. It reminds me of Jesus' words in John 6. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. I'll satisfy you. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That longing, I'll fill it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, listen, I will never cast out. You know, but you don't know my life. You don't know the things I've done. I certainly couldn't share that with these people here, but I could definitely never share them with God. If he only, 
he, if he knew what I did in my past and these bad things and all that sort of stuff, he would never accept me. Again, let me, let me correct your thinking. Anyone that comes to God and says, you know what, I'm a pretty good guy, I got most things together, I'm good to go, the Lord basically says to that person, I'm not interested. No, thank you. It's only those that come and say, I'm a louse and I'm a mess and I got nothing going for me and I desperately need you to forgive me and, and I got nothing to offer you. Would you forgive me? It's only those that the Lord says, you're the one I've been looking for. Come on in. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And David responds graciously to these people. He becomes their king. Now as the new king, verse 4 David needs now to find a place to rule. David had been ruling in Hebron. Hebron is it's not centrally located. It's sort of down in the south of the rectangle that is Israel. And so it seems that David wants to find somewhere that is a little more centrally located, something that will sort of unite the northern tribes, the southern tribes, and so on. And he, he has his eye on a particular city, a city that was roughly about seven miles from where David grew up. David grew up in Bethlehem. David was a shepherd in Bethlehem, which means he would take his sheep out onto the fields there. The fields, they're not flat like you know, our fields, our farms and so on. They're just hills. And he would guide the sheep out there and they would eat you know, the, the grass and stuff that was growing there. And I suspect that when David would sit down on those hills, that he could look not too far away. Seven miles is not very far when you're in a high place in, in a clear Israel. And he would sit at the top of those hills and he would see this city. The, scripture, the place here, it calls it Jebus. And he would see that. And who knows, maybe someday he said, that would be a great place to build a house. That would be a great place to run a kingdom from. If I ever get to be a king, get away from these sheep, this is, that's where I'll build my city. So David has his eye on a particular place. And as I said, uh, it's the town of Jebus. Let's read it. It says, now David and all Israel went to Jerusalem. That is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. You know it as Jerusalem. It used to be called Jebus, and the Jebusites lived there. The inhabitants of Jebu said to David when he shows up there, he said, you'll not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, another name for the city, that is the city of David. And David said, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zariah, he went up first, so he became the chief. And David lived in the stronghold. Therefore, it was called the city of David. And he built the city all around from the millow in complete circuit, and Joab repaired the rest of the city, and David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, if you look at verse 5, David comes to the edge of this city that he had his eye on for so many years, and they say to him, you're not going to get in here. You see, the town of Jebus was a, it was a city that was a fortified city. They've discovered, archaeologists have recently unearthed the city, the city of David. When we go to Israel in February, we'll, we'll go down because it had been covered over years and years um, with rocks and so on. But it's now unearthed. You can go down into the midst of the city of David. You can find the water shaft that I'll talk to you about in a moment. You can tap into Hezekiah's tunnel and work for three-tenths of a... You can walk for three-tenths of a mile underneath the city of Jerusalem. It's the most amazing of things, this aqueduct system that Hezekiah built, uh, the king of Israel built many years after David himself there. But the city of David, you can go, you can find it today. But Jebus had been a city that the children of Israel had had difficulties with. They just couldn't free it. It's located right in the midst of the promised land. God promised all of this land, first to Abraham and then subsequently to his children and so on. This is the promised land, but yet in the midst of that, there's this city that they just couldn't free. It tells us in Joshua chapter 15, 
It says, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of what would be called Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. That's until the day of the writing of the book of Joshua. Judges, 40 years later after the book of Joshua, in Judges chapter 1, it says, now the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem. They captured the city. They struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And say, so, okay, we're making progress. We're moving forward. But if you look a little further down in verse 21, it says, but the people of Benjamin, they were unable to drive out or they did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people uh, of Benjamin in Jerusalem until this day. Jerusalem was a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. It was a city, it was a stronghold city that the people of Israel couldn't deliver, so to speak. They couldn't get the enemy out of the land. And I think there's, there's a valuable ex, uh, application for us is here because in our walks with Christ, we're followers of Christ, many of us in the room. And as a follower of Christ, there's those areas in our lives, those strongholds. When I came to Christ, there was glaring areas of sin. And you ask anyone, what are some of the character deficiencies of Greg? People would have told you. Well, he's this and he's that and he does this and so on and so forth. There were glaring areas of sin and the Lord began to work on those areas of my life. But then there are the strongholds. Those places that are just down really deep. Those hidden dark areas that I continue to struggle with uh, in my life as seeking to be a follower of Christ. And it seems that many times those strongholds you'll never get freedom from. You'll never get victory over. They're just going to be a jay-boos in your life and you're going to have to live with that. But I, I want to draw your attention to this. Remember I said David was a foreshadowing of Jesus? When David was the king of Hebron, Jebus remained in the hands of the enemy. But when all of the people of Israel invited to be, David to be their king, there was immediate victory over the land of Jebus. And I think there's a picture for us in what happens when we invite Christ to have control over every area of our lives. You see, Dave, Christ is very much like David was. David was asked to be the king of Hebron. So David was the king of Hebron. David didn't force himself to be the king of all Israel. As we said, he waited upon the Lord. And it's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. Christ will be the king over the areas of your life that you allow him to be the king. But he's not going to force himself into every area of your life. You have to willingly lay it down. You have to give it up. And the time that you invite Christ... And you say, I want you to be the king of all of my life, all of Israel. You will then begin to notice victories in areas that you never had victory before. I speak because I read the scripture, but I also speak from experience. The first year of my walk with Christ was a year of repeated failure after failure after failure. I was having victory in some areas. I was getting you know, rid of the fighting you know, that I commonly did every Friday night, it seemed, at a party. I was getting rid of some of the drunkenness. Uh, and those sorts of things. I was getting rid of the foul language and just sort of the bitter spirit and those sorts of things. Those sorts of things, they were passing away. And, and maybe on the outside I was changing. But there were areas, there were habits, there were sins that I kept returning to, even though I didn't want to. And as I searched out my heart during that year of repeated failure, what I had realized is that I had invited the Lord to be king over a few portions of my life. One of the tribes, two of the tribes, three of the tribes, so to speak. I thought I was doing pretty good because I had, honestly, I had invited Christ to be Lord over 70 or 80% of my life. I thought that was more than generous. 
to give this guy, this God, 70% of my life? That's very generous. But the Lord wanted 100% of my life. And it was that remaining 20% or 30% that kept tripping me up and kept causing me to fall and kept causing me to stumble. And it wasn't until I gave it all up to him. And when I gave it to him, I had no plan for victory. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to have victory in this area, this area that I keep falling in. I just simply crawled up to him and I said, I give up. And it was when I gave up that I really began to experience victory and growth. I think the Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, 6, he says, We know that our old self, our old man, was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I think I put it up there. That word brought to nothing, it can be, and some versions do, it can be translated paralyzed. So here's what you need to think of it as. Your old man, so to speak, is this mean, old, gruff kind of a guy. A killer is what he is. Horrible guy. And here you are, you're in your house, so to speak, and you hear this voice of the old man that is coming from a distant room down the end of the hall. And this guy, you can just tell in his voice, he's going to kill somebody. And he is calling out all sorts of horrible, terrible things of what he's going to do to you and the way in which he's going to mistreat you. And you're scared out of your mind. But little bit of courage, you begin to walk slowly down that hall and get closer and closer to this man that is going to kill you. And as you peek into the room, what you notice is that the, the place where this voice is coming from is a paralyzed man that sits in a chair, quadriplegic, has control from the neck up and can talk a good game, but has no ability, no power whatsoever to accomplish anything of which he is going to say. You see, that man is paralyzed. He can breathe any threat that he wants to breathe out to you, but he has no power to do anything to you. And the scripture here says that the body of sin may be brought to nothing. Your body of sin might call out to you all the time, and it might tempt you, and it might lead you astray, and it might say things like, you're going to fall anyway. You're going to give in to that sin anyway. You might as well. I'm going to make you fall into that sin. I'm going to get up out of this chair and do so. And you remind that body of sin, I'm sorry, you're a paralyzed man. I'm dead to you. You have no power over me. We no longer need to be chained. Now, it continues. It says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He can't chain us up anymore. And the only chains that trip us up as followers of Christ are the chains that we voluntarily go over and latch. You have been set free from sin. We sang earlier, what do we sing, Josh? The same... The same power that conquered the grave is in me, the, past, the song says that we read. The Holy Spirit that was able to raise up Christ from the dead, that same power is in us. And it can give us victory over those strongholds in our lives. If you're a slave, it's because you chose to remain a slave. I was a stagnating Christian. I was unable to move ahead until I gave Christ control of that final 20 or 30%. And I would encourage you, give it all up. Give it all up. The result... When I did, was I finally was, in, was able to inhabit the Holy Land, if you will. My own Jerusalem, so to speak. The place from which Christ could reign, the King of Kings could reign in my heart. And that's when God really began to work in my life. That's when I began to see growth. And I began to see progress in my walk with Him. And boy, those were fun years. It was about a year. But now I'm about 18 years of age. I'm in college. I had just come back from a retreat. Um, with some of my friends at the college, and I had made the determination, Lord, you have it all. I give it all to you. 
And God began to do a work. And, and I looked back, you know, months after that, years after that, and just wondered, why didn't I do that earlier? Why didn't I give myself earlier? Well, God blessed me. We're going to stop there today, uh, here, but I do want to draw your attention to this. Look at verse 9. How's that for, like, tricking you? We're going to stop there, but we're not. You know, so keep paying attention. But in verse 9, notice what it says, And David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. Why did David become greater and greater? Because the Lord was with him. Why was the Lord with him? Because he was with the Lord. I read this uh, on Facebook from one of my friends, guy I don't even know, he doesn't know me, I don't know him really, um, but he sure put some good stuff on Facebook. So he became a friend, uh, and he wrote this he, yesterday. He said, never undertake anything for which you wouldn't have the courage to ask the blessing of heaven. I think that's good advice. If we're going to seek the blessing of God in our lives, it had better be on things that God is willing to bless. Have you ever heard a prayer like this? Father, I pray that this bank robbery goes well in Jesus' name. Amen. No, you can't pray a prayer like that because God's not going to bless something like that. We want to be a people that our prayers are prayers that the Lord can bless. God was with David because David was with God. And because of that, he became greater and greater. You want to be prosperous in the ways of the Lord? Do you want to experience the hand of God's blessing? Then bring your ways in line with Him, all of our ways. Not 80%, not even 90%, but 100%. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are, I am just, uh, I'm humbled by the reality of how much you, you care for us, how much you love us, how patient you are, how merciful, how forgiving, how gracious. And Father, uh, you, you could, I guess, as God, have the power to just step in and make us stop. But you just patiently wait for us to return to you or to come to you for the first time. And then your response is so different from what our responses, many of our responses would probably be. Lord, you are so welcoming and so inviting and so merciful and so forgiving. Lord, you're altogether different from who we are. And Lord, we love that about you. And Father, as uh, you have first loved us, we seek to love you. Not out of a compulsion, but just out of the natural inclination of our hearts. Lord, you know what is wise and what is best for us. And, and Lord, you know that there are areas of our lives, even I've been walking with the Lord for 25 years, and some for twice as long. But you know that there are still the deepest places that I maintain control over. And Lord, uh, step one, I think, is just your revelation of light on that area. Reveal, Lord, to each one of us, no matter where we are in our walk with you, an area that you put your finger on that you want to change, that you want to deliver us from, and you want to set us on the path of righteousness. And Lord, I ask that you would grant us the courage today to unlatch that chain and to experience the freedom that is found in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. We give ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. A thousand times I fail Still your mercy remains Should I stumble again Still I'm called in your ways, everlasting.
Majesty, your light will shine with all. Else. 